Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have with us a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant individual. Um, I think that I'm an author until I read his work and see how it is depicted throughout the world, but none other than uh, Ruman Alam. How are you feeling today, brother? Well, listen, you just called me brilliant three times, so I'm not going to complain about that. No, I feel great. I feel great. Thank you for having me today. Your work is um, timeless, though, and I think that's what we're saying. So I think brilliance does define <sighs> timeless art. Well, that's very generous of you. Um, what I would what I would say, or what I what I hear in my head when I hear that, is sort of a, like the timelessness of art, is that it reminds me how useful art can be in different moments, and I'm sort of like. I remain really grateful if people found something of interest in my last book, you know, that came out three years ago and still feels, you know, by virtue of the Netflix film, um, that it has something to say about this particular moment. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. It's a, it's an amazing film. But look, we my, my show is kind of unique because we start each um, episode by asking our guests the same question. Okay. Uh, and basically, I would like for you to walk me through the arc of your career. You're a writer now, three books under your belt, and we'll talk about Leave the World Behind in a bit and your two podcasts with Slate. But talk about your upbringing and the arc of your career. And at what point did you realize that writing and art would be your calling? Yeah, um, I think like a lot of people, I was sort of addicted to books as a child. I think it was common for a lot of people who become writers. And I ha always had some instinct even as a very young kid that I would want, that I wanted to write books. Um, I remember writing books, right? Like sort of writing a story and stapling pieces of paper together when I was in second grade, first grade. And, you know, there's that sort of like a child's fantasy version of what they're going to do when they grow up. And then there's the reality of what people do and are required, what is required of them as adults. And I worked in magazine publishing when I finished college and so that was my you know i was working in the world of words and publishing but it was just sort of beyond just sort of outside what i really had envisioned for myself ultimately i went to work in advertising which is a great way to make pretty good money pretty good living and you, i told myself then and i think it's true now that i was still working with words i was still kind of working with storytelling but i had a sense that it wasn't what i really wanted to be doing that i really wanted to write a book and it was after I had had my second child, actually, he was probably two at the time that I, I just had this realization that if I didn't attempt to do what I really had always wanted to do, then I would have only myself to blame, right? That it would only, it would, it would be my fault for not having tried to write a book. And so I tried and I wrote my first book and then sold it much to my surprise and sort of changed my changed my career. I, I no longer work in advertising and now I write books full time. So that's kind of a quick version of the story. And I think the takeaway, if there isn't any takeaway, if that's applicable at all to other people, is that, you know, sometimes you do owe it to yourself to attempt that thing that some voice inside has been saying for a long time, like, this is what you really want to be doing. I mean, that's kind of fascinating just to hear your, um, just to hear your life's arc and to hear the progress you made. And it's a, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Uh, many people who listen to my show know this um, kind of small um, factoid about me, I guess, um, that I got turned down, I think about 30 times 
uh, for my first book um, until a publisher believed in me. Her name was Tracy Sherrod and sat down with me in New York and gave me an opportunity. Um, I felt like the author of A Wrinkle in Time because I think she got turned down a few yeah. times. Well, so yeah. I, I, we are we are giving a motivational uh, <laughs> podcast today about stick to it. Um, but let's talk about leave the world behind because I'm not gonna lie to you. I, I am. Um, I watched it first time kind of drunk and then I, was, <laughs> I saw things in it and I was like, this is amazing. I don't know if it's because I'm not sober or what. And then I started it over sober and you pick up different things each time. So yeah. listeners, watch it in many different states of mind, but uh, unpack, leave the world behind. And what's it about? And unpack the title for me even most. Yeah. Um, so leave the world behind sort of like on, on a plot synopsis level is about a white middle-class family of four who, you know, head out to the beach for a long weekend or just to get away from everyday life. And there's a kind of confrontation with this Black couple who um, say that they are the people who own the house that this family has rented. And the story kind of shifts under your feet to become this collision of race and class that feels very familiar from a lot of American storytelling. And then I think it shifts further to become a story about uncertainty and the kind of, the kind of pervasive uncertainty of the contemporary moment. It feels like there's a disaster unfolding, but you can never quite see the disaster. And so then I think that the viewer's attention is, is, you know, it's confused. It's like, well, are we in this family story? Are we in this disaster story? Where, where are we oriented? And it's funny that you described being a little tipsy watching it because, in fact, I feel like the people we're seeing on screen are a little tipsy a lot of the time. And so maybe that's a useful way to watch it. You know, Julia Roberts is kind of pounding the line in that movie. And so you kind of got the experience that, that her character is having in the inside of the story. Um, and to me, it's sort of fundamentally about how you know, the human response to uncertainty. It's not really a, it's a disaster story on the one hand, but you never really see the disaster with any clarity. So really what what I think Sam's film and what my book are trying to um, divert the, the audience attention to is how people respond to disaster. And I, if it is resonant with a contemporary audience, I think it's because we're all sort of living that right now. There's a feeling of, profound connection by virtue of our cell phones and the technology that's letting me talk to you right now. But what that has created, I think, is a sense that there's always a disaster unfolding that we can't quite understand. And how do we respond to that? How do we, how do we treat one another? How do we treat, you know, people we don't know to survive that sort of disaster, so to speak, together? This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. 
Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. I mean, it's it's vastly different, but kind of in the same category as don't look up, if that makes any sense. Yeah. The movie, not, not the book, yeah. but yeah. the TV, you, um, you know, my grandmother has this saying, um, Ruman, and she would say, uh, you can't fall off the floor. And you know how <laughs> old people say stuff that don't make yes. sense. Yeah. You get to a certain age and finally I'm like, you know, that makes sense. A lot of us feel like we're on the floor. Um, yeah. Leave the world behind. It helps us articulate how we navigate that moment when we hit that that place in our life. Zooming out a bit, talk to me about your creative process and how you come up with and, and develop your storylines and your characters. Well, what I usually say to this is that if I understood it well, I could just replicate those conditions. I wish it were as simple as sort of popping a pill or something, and then I could just be in the zone to write a book. I think these things build over time, like, and I think they're affected principally by what you're taking in. And so it's about what you're reading, what you're looking at, what you're watching. And so I'm always wary of any artistic advice that doesn't begin with, you have to feed yourself creatively. You have to watch a lot of films. You have to read a lot of books. You have to look at paintings. You, I think it's even important to engage with art that you don't totally comprehend, to go to the opera, to go to the ballet, to sort of have an experience that maybe puts you slightly outside of your comfort zone and does something to you that's very human. Because art always strikes me as like one of the best things that humans have come up with. And so even if you think ballet has nothing in it for you, that's fine, but you know you can go see it. You can get cheap tickets to a ballet for thirty nine dollars. Like maybe you should just go and experience that. This particular book, I think, was born of a lot of different pressures in my life. My interest in certain atmospheres of film and theater, um, the kind of opaque, frightening uncertainty of a play like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Edward Albee, where you're just sort of watching it and you're trying to figure out what's happening. That really does something to you as an audience member. And also, I think this is the book for me personally that has a lot to do with my experience of being a parent. That, you know, when you have a child, you you simply don't know what's going to happen to them. And when they are first delivered into your hands, if you are very lucky, they're healthy, Right but they're very tiny and they need everything and you're watching them constantly and you're constantly on some level thinking about the ways in which it could go wrong. And then eventually you have to make your peace for the fact that something will go wrong, that your kid is going to break her arm on the playground, that someone's going to call them an unkind name. You know, I have black kids and one of the most pervasive fears in my psyche now, which is not new to any black parent in this country in the last 200 years is my inability to control their experience of the world once they leave the house. And, uh, you know, I, I have a 14 year old who to me looks like a baby, like a baby, like exactly the same as he's always looked. And I have seen 
the how that is a lie, how that is an illusion, and that to uh, a shopkeeper he might look like, you know, an adult, and you know, of course, yeah, yeah, it's just like it's frightening, it's frightening, and I will have to live with that fear forever. And we all have those different sort of pressure points on ourselves emotionally. And I wanted to write a book that sort of captured that feeling. Because the truth is that we all go on with our lives. You and I don't know what's going to happen to us this afternoon. I could get hit by a car. You know, like we just, we, we, there's no bargain in reality. And we continue to go about our daily lives. Because if you didn't, that would be insanity. It would be paranoia. It would be a mental illness. That's really interesting to me that that the essential bargain of life is you have to just make your peace for the fact that it's all really uncertain. That's powerful and true. Um, I completely understand the parenting aspect of that. Can you talk a little bit about the process of how a book is adopted into a movie and what's that like seeing your book become a film? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will with the caveat that I think that I speak as somebody who has had a particularly charmed experience of this, like it's all gone really, really well for me. And you hear a lot of horror stories about novelists and their experience outside of Hollywood. Essentially what happened is um, this book was coming out in the fall of 2020. And I think my agent or somebody, somebody somehow got a copy, an early copy of the book to Sam Esmail, who is a writer and director. And Sam read the book. He's described reading the book very quickly. He was on holiday with his own family. This was in 2020. This was sort of like the, I don't want to say peak, but it was really the thick of this country and in fact, the world's experience of COVID-19 and and, uh, quarantine and all of that difficult stuff. So that was the context in which he read this book. And so he was, I believe, at an Airbnb with his family, his in-laws, and reading this book about describing people who are trapped inside of an Airbnb with people they don't really know and don't know what's happening in the world. So there was a kind of eerie resonance. I spoke to Sam in June of that year, not long after he had read the book, and he we just sort of talked about it, what I was trying to do, what it made him think of. And he began to talk about his idea that this could be a film and that it sort of um that the work seemed to, it seemed the right vehicle for something that he had had in mind to do artistically for a long time. So it sort of felt like the perfect match. And, you know, Sam, uh, prior to Leave the World Behind, had made a show called Homecoming with Julia Roberts. Excellent, excellent show. And so they have a very close working relationship. They're good friends. You know, he had elicited this sort of incredible performance out of her in that show that's so different from the kinds of things I think were, when you say Julia Roberts, like I think of Steel Magnolias and you see her in Homecoming, you're like, wow, I can't believe this is the same person. Same person. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, and so Sam had really had this sense that that Julia, Julia's talents would be especially well suited to this adaptation. And, you know, as the writer, when somebody, when a director is coming to you and saying, you know who would be great for this movie? The biggest movie star in the world. Like, what am I going to say? Oh, yeah, great idea. Like, you know, it, it's like an incredible, you know, series of events. Like, a, it, it never happens this way. And, you know, Julia is hardly the only star in this movie. Every performance in this movie is absolutely unreal. And so I, I'm, I'm glad that I had <clears throat> that initial faith in Sam. 
it was really well placed because he was able to assemble this sort of dream team with Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, Ethan Hawke, Charlie Evans and uh, Farrah McKenzie, who play their children. Extraordinary performances. Those weren't names that I knew before, but they're names that I will remember now because they're incredibly gifted actors. So, you know, and then Sam was able to, you know, place the film at a studio that, uh, that really trusted him and let him make a movie that I think is like pretty provocative and, you know, surprising. It's a, it's a disobedient movie. My, one of my goals for the book was always to disobey the convention. You know, you read a book about a disaster or a monster or a horror and you, the bargain is that the book is going to tell you what's going on. And my book doesn't really ever do that. And I think it's to Sam's great credit that the film doesn't either. It, it, it suggests things, it has ideas in it. There's a lot there, but ultimately this is a movie that says, okay, you, the audience, you figure this out. I think it really respects its audience. And it says, you take this in- extraordinary puzzle and you piece it together. And I, that's what I love about the adaptation. How do you ensure that it, it or do you lose all control that it meets your... Yeah, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I think like, you know, it's uh, it's an exercise in trust. And, you know, my initial conversation with Sam was not, you know, nece- it was not just, oh, I'm going to talk to you about what I want to do to make this into my movie. It was, what were you reading when you wrote this book? What were you thinking about? What is this idea about? You know, and to realize that he and I are colleagues, that we work in different mediums, but there's a sort of common language it made me, you know, and he's like, a, he's just a decent guy with a lot of talent. And so I really trusted him. And because I trusted him, I was able to just say like, okay, I trust you. You do what you do. You make a movie. You, that's your job. I, I, I've done my job. Now you do your job. But no, of course you don't have any control. But it, it's funny because that's sort of what the book is about, that you don't have any control. And so <laughs> I'm glad that I learned that lesson. And I'm happy that it has ended so happily, that like the finished film is something I feel so proud of. And I think it's so beautifully translates what the ideas that I was trying to chase down. Um, it doesn't always go this way for writers working in Hollywood. It really doesn't. And I feel very lucky that it went this way for me. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com, Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. I've asked this uh, question of authors. I've asked it of myself. I've asked it of Cicely Tyson, Jada Pinkett, and I'm asking it of you as well. Um, how did this book change you? You know, I don't know that it's legible to me. You know, on the one hand, it was a commercial success. So that kind of success does change what I have access to, right? I have a lot more. When I was writing this book, when the book was coming out, I was teaching. That's That was sort of how I made my money. So on the one hand, my life has changed that I sort of have some liberty now that I just write. I'm in this room, the room where I'm sitting right now. That's my job to come into this room and do my do my work. And that's a huge gift. But I think on what you're asking is like a more meaningful question. Putting putting down on the page the ideas that are in this book, the idea that I am so afraid for my kids' future and that we all are and should be afraid for our children's future, putting it on the page and getting it out of my brain, it doesn't mean that those fears or those concerns aren't present because that never goes away. But it does feel like I, I did something with them. I put them down. I got them. I, I, I some, to some extent, got them out of my system or I metabolized them into a story that imagines the worst. And that sort of maybe by doing that, the worst will stay over there. It'll stay inside the covers of a book and not be here in my own life. How is this project different from your other ones? Simply in terms of the relationship to a reader, that there are so many more. And Again, I think it had something to do, I described to you Sam reading this book in that period of COVID, but that's when a lot of readers came to the book. And so it felt like it had really something to say about the moment readers were living through. So it attracted more readers. And that is, that's really what you want as a writer. The currency with which writers are paid isn't money at all. It's time. So there's something kind of sacred about this many people giving their time, which is the one thing in the world that we possess that like is really finite, to something that I had dreamt up. That's very, it means a great deal to me. It's something that like I consider almost sacred. And so, yeah, the ability or the, 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 the circumstance of this book was able to attract so many readers is very different. It's a very different experience from my my previous two books. It's just it's it's a whole different kind of experience. I think is the best word to put. Uh, this book is it, it's in its own place, kind of rightfully so. How can people buy the book? I know it came out three years ago. Probably it came out three years ago. It's having it's a research. In, it's not the same it's still in print. What I always say is that you should buy a book from your independent bookseller because. Our cities are so much richer when we have independent booksellers in them. Like, it's just a better experience. But, you know, you can get it from the library if that's what you, you know, if you're a library person. Like, it's, it's, it's pretty available. And, um, you know, you can get it at the airport right now. There's a copy of the book with Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke and Mahershala Ali and Mahela's faces on the cover. Like, you know, that's like a happy circumstance for a writer that like a film could elevate 
<clears throat> this work that I dreamt up three years ago to that level is sort of, you know, astonishing. And how can people watch the movie? It's on Netflix now. Uh, it was in theaters. I, be I believe it's mostly out of theaters now, um, but it is on Netflix. So you could have a couple drinks as you did and cue it up and like prepare yourself for, uh, you know, what I really think is a very unusual experience in contemporary film going. It's like a, it's a movie that is funny and tender and like sharp, but also really, really scary. And it's like a very unusual thing for one movie to be both of those things. Well, look, I absolutely love this book. I love the movie. I like the book more than a movie, but it is what it is. Uh, <laughs> I won't tell Sam. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, so how can listeners follow you and what do you have in the future coming up? Any new projects we need to be looking at? Yeah, uh, you can. I use Instagram a lot and I use Twitter a lot to complain and mouth off. Um, I'm easy to find on both of those platforms. Um, and I have a book coming out next year. Um, I have a new book that I just finished only a couple of weeks ago. It's called Entitlement. It'll be out in the fall of 2024. And it, I, you know, I think that it's the goal for me artistically to always be most excited about that next thing, to feel like that is where my <clears throat> intellect and my emotion are really concentrated. And it's a book about money. It's a book about the relationship between a young-ish woman, a 33-year-old woman, and her boss, who's a uh, an American billionaire at the end of his life who's giving away his fortune before he dies and what it does to her to have this intimate relationship, not sexual, not romantic, but very intimate with somebody who is possessed of a great amount of money and just the distorting effect of money on contemporary reality. Yeah, that sounds like a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Ruman Alam, thank you for joining Bakari Sellers podcast. This was a, I think, a pretty motivational uh, pod for individuals who are kind of stuck and don't don't get fired, don't leave your job, but you know, go out and do some of the things that you think you should be doing in life would be more fulfilling. Thank you so much. It was really great to talk to you. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.